Welcome, Litigation Nation. I'm your host, Luke Banke, alongside my co-host, Jack Sanker. For those of you new to the show, this is the podcast where we recap the most interesting legal news stories and talk to you about what you need to know. Some new stories for you uh, this week. The ABA is trying to eliminate the law school admissions test. Jack, what do you got? Top-ranking state legislators convicted of a massive money laundering and corruption scene, highlighting the downsides of the so-called dark money political contributions, and a story about the merger of JetBlue and Spirit Airlines, what the merger means, and why the United States Department of Justice is seeking to block it. All that and more coming your way. Here's what you need to know. According to uh, Reuters, the ABA is trying to eliminate the law school admissions test, LSAT, as it's commonly known. Uh, The section of the American Bar Association that oversees law schools recently revived its push to let schools go test optional. The ABA's Council of the Section of Legal Education and Admissions to the Bar overwhelmingly voted to resubmit a controversial proposal to end by 2025 the long-standing requirement that schools use the law school admissions test or other standardized tests when admitting new students. Now, that decision comes uh, on the heels of the ABA's policymaking body, it's called the House of Delegates, rejected that change amid warnings that law student diversity would suffer. It first attempted to get rid of the admission test rule in 2018, but backed off when it was clear that the House of Delegates wouldn't go along with the plan. The proposal, of course, has divided the legal academy uh, essentially down the middle. Opponents, including a group of 60 law school deans and the Law School Admissions Council, uh, that's the group that designs and administers the LSAT, warned that eliminating the test requirement would make admissions offices more dependent on subjective measures, such as the prestige of an applicant's college. That could disadvantage minority applicants, they say. Those who want to get rid of the test requirement have argued that the LSAT is a barrier for minority would-be lawyers because, on average, they score below white test takers and because law schools rely too heavily on those scores. Indeed, a 2019 study found the average score for a black LSAT taker was 142 compared to 153 for white and Asian test takers. LSAC, that's L-S-A-C, offered an alternative proposal under which the ABA would enable law schools to admit up to 20% of their classes from applicants who did not submit a standardized test. In rejecting that proposal, the figure was called arbitrary Uh, and said it wouldn't break the regulatory monopoly that admissions test makers enjoy in legal education. So, Jack, I know you had to take the uh, LSAT uh, before, you know, going to law school. I had to take it. Uh, I remember that was not a pleasant experience. Um, What's your take on getting rid of standardized testing in general uh, before entry uh, into law school? Oh, man. I mean, I complicated uh, topic. I don't necessarily love standardized tests um, in a lot of areas. Uh, I think, I mean, it's multiple questions you can ask and answer here, whether the LSAT itself should be replaced with something, which I think maybe I'm open to that. 
Um, but the idea of eliminating standardized testing for admissions in general, I think I'm probably, probably don't like the negative externalities of that. Um, I understand that, uh, you know, law school or uh, LSAT performance probably doesn't correlate well to law school performance. I think it does correlate well to first year uh, law school performance in terms of GPA, at least from what I remember reading about it. Um, And it doesn't really matter much after that. Uh, And it it certainly probably doesn't correlate strongly at all to bar passage rates or, you know, how good of an attorney someone is, which is really what we're trying to do here is train good lawyers. So it's probably not super important. However, I think that what you mentioned is what are you replacing it with? And if it's down to the strength of like intangible aspects of an application, such as where what someone went to undergrad, um, what other connections that person may have, uh, and you're taking it away from an objective measure um, and into the more subjective, I think you'll probably see worse diversity outcomes in that scenario than in the current scenario. And like, you know, I, I think the explanations as for like minority performance on um, uh, standardized tests are, are, are well established. I think there's correlates to um, income level and exposure to, you know, tutors and uh, getting basically trained to take a standardized test, which is something that, um, you know, more well off social classes are just better at because of the opportunities that they've had maybe prepping for the SAT, maybe AP courses at their school that aren't offered in other schools. So, you know, I, that doesn't surprise me. That's It's really unfortunate. And I think that that probably plays out in most standardized tests for entry into professional school for all those reasons. Um, but I would be cautious in just eliminating it without a competent replacement um, to make sure that the less objective measures for entry aren't even more uh, discriminatory. And um, I would, and also while ensuring the quality of candidate, which is something that, I mean, it seems like the law school deans are, are concerned with. And I think there has been trends recently in terms of bar passage rates and things like that, um, that are concerning. Um, and, you know, balancing those issues is, is going to be something that the ABA is going to have to think really hard about. Yeah, I don't I don't disagree with you at all. I, that was a, a thoughtful analysis. I, I think my issue is that the the LSAT, you know, forever has been sort of the great equalizer. Right. It's the one thing that every candidate that wants to do this for a living had to do. Right. You, you had to you had to take and, and perform on the LSAT. And then it was a way for schools, you know, to analyze um this student's uh, potential in law school. And it's not a subjective measure, right? It's, a, it's an objective score uh, on an exam that everyone's got to take. And so that was a way to sort of distinguish between, um, you know, those candidates that you know, whatever schools thought would turn into better attorneys. Now, I think you, you hit the nail on the head, right? What is the, what is the purpose of, of the LSAT and what are we trying to do in law school in general? If the LSAT is not a good predictor of, um, you know, students who are going to do well in law school, or it's not a good predictor of, um, you know, someone who's going to turn out to be a good lawyer, uh, 
then then I then you're right that that question that you sort of asked rhetorically it's like what what is the LSAT doing for us um, uh, if it's not a good indicator of someone's success in the profession then then why do we have it um, on the other hand I would hate to be in the admissions office sort of looking at all of these kind of different subjective factors and not having you know at least one or two kind of objective things that you can compare uh, applicants on. Uh, otherwise it's like, you know, you're going off of, uh, you know, this student had a three, four at, you know, Wisconsin and another one had a, you know, a 3.6 at, you know, Bradley in Illinois. It's like, well, what, you know, what, how do you, how do you sort of compare those two applicants? Uh, yeah. And, and, and if the other thing that comes to mind is like, <laughs> you know, is someone who, I mean, I, I didn't like hit a home run on the LSAT personally, um, but we all have, especially in our, I would say our age bracket um, and maybe a little bit older, the folks that, that came out of law school right after the um, financial crisis, 2008, 2009, um, came out of school with loads of student debt and then couldn't get a job uh, and, or got a really low paying job. I mean, the LSAT is a gatekeeping mechanism um, to folks loading up with debt, frankly. And if I were, if I couldn't, and I'm not saying the LSAT is a great measure for measuring this, but the argument for doing a standardized test or something upfront before law school, one of the arguments has got to be keeping people that aren't going to do well in law school from taking out $200,000 worth of student loans. Um, and you know, if I'm one of those people, and there's nothing wrong with that, by the way, but if I'm one of those people, I certainly want to know sooner rather than later. <laughs> and, um, and the LSAT does serve that function. It really does. So um, I, I mean, I don't design standardized tests. Um, all for getting rid of it and replacing it with something different. I'm sure the logic game section and all that stuff is like, you know, you learn it long enough to take the test and then you'd never think about it again. Uh, but um, and t- eliminating those things entirely, I think, the negative externalities of that may outweigh the uh, the laudable and you know important goals of uh, diversity and inclusion and everything else, but you're going to end up harming a lot of those people too. So something you need to counterbalance. Yeah, that's a great point. I think I'm looking at this as okay. Well, how are these admissions uh, departments going to distinguish between candidates without you know some sort of objective measure? Your point is something I hadn't even thought of, where it's like okay this is also good for those taking the test. Like, yeah, it sucks studying for the LSAT and, you know, uh, taking it is, it can be nerve wracking, but um, you're right. It is an indicator, right? You, if you come back and it's like, boy, I just don't get this or I can't perform well on this or I can't get a good score. Like, then you're right. Maybe you should reconsider, you know, kind of MBA. what you're doing, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Go to business school or, or, you know, whatever, like, and, and that's not like it's easier or, or anything else. People's brains are, are wired differently. Um, and I think given enough time and effort, anyone can take the LSAT and do fine, frankly. Um, it's not, it, it's just a unique set of things that people have to have the time and, um, and, and effort and circumstances around them lined up in such a way that they can perform well enough on this, frankly, arbitrary set of standards that aren't particularly indicative of practicing in the legal world. Um, so, I mean, if, but 
we got to have something, I think, is what we kind of have settled on here. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it goes back to what what is the objective? What are you trying to do uh, by getting rid of the, the LSAT? It appears it's to create more diverse, um, you know, more diverse student bodies. Um, and, it, and if that's the case, I don't know, maybe there are better ways to do it. I'm not sure. Up next, a federal jury in Ohio just found former Ohio Speaker of the House Larry Householder and former Ohio Republican Chair Matt Borges guilty of felony racketeering charges in connection with a billion-dollar utility bailout. Both of these men are looking at sentences up to 20 years max and what prosecutors say is the biggest bribery and money laundering scandal in Ohio history. And here's a brief summary of the scheme that they were involved in from the Ohio Capital Journal. Quote, as part of the racketeering scheme, Akron-based First Energy and other utilities paid tens of millions in an effort to elect friendly lawmakers in 2018, who would then vote to make Householder Speaker the following year. Immediately after taking the Speaker's gavel, Householder worked furiously to pass a $1.3 billion bailout, the vast majority of which benefited First Energy subsidiary First Energy Services. Now, the company was being dragged down by losses from its nuclear and coal plants, and executives were seeking a bailout. When it got more than $1 billion out of the deal, Householder got political power, as well as more than a half a million dollars personally, jurors found. Borges played a smaller role, but he paid a $15,000 bribe to help defeat an attempt to repeal the bailout, and he received more than 100000 in funds that originated from First Energy, prosecutors said, unquote. So according to the prosecutors, and I guess according to the jury verdict now, Householder was strapped for cash in 2016. At the same time, First Energy, a massive energy corporation that owns nuclear plants and coal plants, things like that, was also bleeding money. First Energy was seeking a bailout from the state of Ohio at the same time Householder was trying to be reelected to Speaker of the State House, and that's how this relationship started. According to the article, Householder was seen at the World Series game in 2016 with in the First Energy box with the CEO. Uh, he flew on a private jet owned by First Energy to Donald Trump's inauguration in 2016, 2017, I guess. Um, <clears throat> prosecutors had pictures of Householder's son and First Energy executives riding around in limousines and going to steakhouses together. Eventually what happened is uh, Householder and his organization set up a 501c4 organization called Generation Now. And it's a bit of a digression here. 501c4 organizations are known by the IRS as social welfare organizations. And the key distinction between them and 501c3s, which are kind of your normal charitable organizations, um, is that 501c3s can be set up for the benefit of private citizens or private institutions, while 501c4s are supposed to be for the benefit of public or communities. It's kind of nebulous as to the definition of 501c4s and for uh, it seems to be for intentional reasons. Importantly, in this case, and what's important to this larger overall story is that 501c4s do not have to disclose who their donors are. These kind of organizations are like a black box where money can come from basically anywhere and then be spent on anything that can be loosely defined as you know community benefit. And this is an example of what you'll hear in the news as a dark money fund that you may have heard about over the past few years. Anyways, this dark money fund generation now, a few weeks before the election, started pouring tens of millions of dollars to fund support 
staff for candidates who would pledge to vote to make householder speaker and to finance tack ads on their opponents. An additional $36 million was put in an effort to block a repeal of the bailout law. So Householder and the lesser player in the story, Republican Chair Matt Borges, received straight up bribe of about $600,000 total. In return, they hammered through $1.3 billion bailout, consolidated power through the dark money lobbying to defeat a ballot measure to repeal the, repeal, repeal the bailout. And for that, Householder and Borges are likely going to jail for a long time. The story, I think, is an important one because it's obviously on its face a massive corruption scheme at a time where there seems to be at least some revival in public infrastructure spending. And recall that the Biden administration passed a $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill in 2022 that I don't really think has hit the accounts of the federal, state, and local governments and agencies that will be responsible for administering the funds, but they will be soon, I'm I'm sure. So... Massive money laundering, bribery, corruption, corruption scheme around the infrastructure spending bills, crazy and hopefully not a harbinger of things to come. But it also highlights a pretty nasty element of the current state of political lobbying, the impact of 501c4 dark money on local politics. As this infrastructure bill rolls out and other federal money comes in, I would be surprised if this is the last time we hear a story like this over the next few years. Luke, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, what I think is that these are always really difficult uh, things to 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 spot, um, you know. So in light of the very recent sort of Silicon Valley bank uh, collapse and bailout, um, you see you, you always hear of, you know, the public sort of being um, upset, rightfully so, at these folks who are able to, you know, sort of uh, privatize their gains and then um, publicize their their losses here. Um, you know, obviously, the Silicon Valley Bank bailout is it's much different than what is than the story that you just described. Um, but the the goal is no different. Right. I mean, these these folks are uh, part of a, a fledgling company and, or, or, or a company that's going under and uh, they managed to get some politicians in their pockets and um, and secure a, a bailout. Um, what makes this and maybe you can help me, Jack, because you've done you've done some obviously more research on it than I have. What what was the bribe? I mean, was this just money going straight to a bank account or was this going to um, a private bank account or was this going to, you know, some sort of fund to help these guys get reelected or, or what, what makes this a bribe versus just money that, you know, you can use for whatever purported free speech purposes? So I, I according to the, the verdict and um, some of the filings, which I glanced at, you know, it, money that goes into a fund that a, camp, a candidate can use to pay for things related to their campaign. Uh, it sounds like a bribe, but it's not. <laughs> That's just regular campaign. Spending. Yeah, right, right. And, um, and so the fact that the, the jury returned a verdict, which said it was a $500,000 bribe, I think means, you know, straight up quid pro quo transfer of funds, you know, from one account to another. Now, like a lot of this stuff and, and people don't always connect the dots is when you have political spending on candidates, that money is limited to being used for um, the, the campaign itself. But campaign itself can mean like private jet trips to go give speaking engagements, um, your hotel while you're there, all the meals that you expense um, as part of that. So like it ends up being funding your private lifestyle quite a bit. Um, and that's been the complaint on this stuff is it's 
you know, it's not just money that gets spent printing pamphlets and stuff in people's mailboxes, which is like, I think the, you know, the old timey understanding of how campaign contributions work. It's, it's being used to fund these people's lifestyles. Um, so it, this seems like an, a straight up bribery case on top of the normal levels of corruption that, you know, are probably legal, but still smell kind of dirty. Um, and <laughs> I mean, it's $1.3 billion of Ohio taxpayer money. And those numbers get thrown around a lot at the federal level, but the state level, that's like, that's a lot. That's a big part of what I imagine Ohio's operating budget is. Um, and so, you know, it, it's, it's a huge scandal. Uh, and with the amount of money that's coming in from the federal government over the next couple of years um, on infrastructure spending, which I think is a good idea, uh, but like it didn't even seem that hard to get to do this. <laughs> it seemed like pretty easy to, to get this this uh, this bailout through and to get these, you know, it, it, nothing was probably nothing was illegal up until that bribe happened, frankly. So um, you're going to see a lot of that. I, I expect over the next couple of years is everyone's lobbying for that juicy infrastructure money. Um, and, you know, we'll see what happens. I think that's my point is that it, it's so it is so easy. To, that's why it's so hard to catch is because it's so sort of easy to do. And and I think the distinction I'm hearing you make is like, you, you know, you can fly somebody on a on a private jet, but you can't buy him a private jet. Um, you know, there's a difference there. Right. And so the next question for me, then, is how do we uh, we how does Ohio claw back these losses? I mean, is this is this company going to go bankrupt since they, you know, are, are they at fault here or what what happens or is that money just gone? Uh, great question. Um, I don't know if the if the Ohio um, attorney general is, is going after after the energy company. Um, I mean, I don't know if they can or 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 not. Um, it seems like they tried to repeal the bailout and that was defeated. So, I mean, by law, the bailout probably already happened. This was 2018. Um, that money is probably, probably gone, frankly. Um, exactly. Then, Presumably they secured it legally, right? I mean, it passed uh, the Ohio's uh, state legislature, right? And, you know, and the money got there. It's that these guys just got enriched on the way. And so there's going to be, you know, criminal charges for them. But looks like the company might uh, might walk away pretty happy, huh? Yeah. Well, I hope that the coal plants and power plants and all that stuff are at least up and running and providing some electricity for the money. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> Me too. In our last story, the Department of Justice and Department of Transportation are looking to block a merger of Airlines, JetBlue, and Spirit, which is a $3.8 billion merger. This is from an article in The Conversation written by Joe Mazur, who's an assistant professor of economics at Purdue, who, according to his bio, specializes in the study of com competition models with application to the U.S. airline industry. So he's got an interesting perspective. Professor Mazur writes that the issue is really twofold. First, yet another merger in an industry already dominated by heavy, heavily consolidated companies, cutting down the competition, and which is bad for all of the obvious reasons. Uh, but besides that, he says the following, quote, but it is more nuanced than that. JetBlue and Spirit have very different business models. JetBlue has positioned itself at the higher end of low-cost carrier space, where Spirit is a through-and-through, no-frills, ultra-low-cost carrier. It keeps prices down by sacrificing things such as complimentary snacks and drinks, entertainment, and comfort. 
Although the deal is framed as a merger, it is really an attempted hostile takeover of Spirit by JetBlue. As such, it's not just the department, the Justice Department that is worried about the impact of losing Spirit, according to the official complaint, so too are Spirit's board of directors. The presence of an ultra-low-cost service like Spirit has a disciplining effect on prices across the entire market. That is, it helps keep ticket prices down, especially in the markets where it competes. And the biggest concern is that if the merger is allowed to go ahead, JetBlue would simply reconfigure the assets of Spirit to match the service level and prices of JetBlue. For example, as cited in the complaint, JetBlue has indicated it plans to remove some seats from Spirit's planes in order to bring them in line with the rest of the JetBlue fleet, unquote. The piece goes on to detail the series of mergers over the last 20 years, merger of Delta and Northwest Airlines in, 20, in 2008, United and Continental in 2010, Southwest and Air Trans in 2011, American Airlines and U.S. Airways in 2013, Virgin America and Alaska Airlines in 2016. Based on that, the government estimates that the largest four airlines represent about 80% of all airline traffic. He notes in the past that the Department of Justice has intervened in these mergers only to ultimately greenlight the mergers after certain concessions were made. Although I would say that the Biden administration has shown signs of life with what has previously been an active area from the federal government, anti-competition practices under the Sherman Act, and in this case under the Clayton Act. I'm not an antitrust expert, but at least from a kind of vibes perspective as someone flies a, a decent amount. It sure feels like airline travel has gotten much, much worse over the past 10 years as companies have consolidated. Uh, truly, it's been really awful, even on short domestic flights. Um, I don't know if you can necessarily blame that on consolidation, but I, could, I think we can safely conclude that consolidation probably hasn't helped airlines rise above, rise above the moment over the past few years. And all of that goes without mentioning the numerous bailouts that airline operators have received from the federal government over the past 10 years. Now, assuming the Biden administration sticks to its guns on this, I think it would be a step in the right direction to preserving what little competition remains in the airline industry, hopefully not allowing the condition to get worse. Luke, what do you think? Yeah, it's a it's a bit counterintuitive, right? Because you've got this one airline, JetBlue, is going to make Spirit better, right? So it's, it, the idea would be that uh, those issues that you mentioned, um, you know, with low cost uh, airlines, um, you know, flights being miserable, entertainment being bad, um, that they're going to remedy that. Uh, on the other, uh, a merger like this, I, I get the argument, makes uh, the industry as a whole worse. And I, you know, you, you do want to have um, different levels uh, of competition in whatever industry you're in. Um, you know, when you only have one or two competitors and you've got, you know, the, that Rockefeller sort of antitrust problem. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, there is a place for for low cost carriers. And, and if it's true that that sort of keeps the industry in line, then, you know, then so be it. I, I just I. Um, I don't know, I I I think it underestimates you know, the power that we have as, you know, sort of Americans to, or, or, or frankly, anybody that flies on a plane, right, to vote with your wallet. I mean, if you if you're not liking what you see out of uh, more expensive carriers, um, you know, you go somewhere else. Um, I think the issue is, you know, there are decreasingly less places to go with your with your wallet. Um, 
and this would be, you know, one less place that you could spend your money and vote on, you know, what you like. Uh, and I think what's interesting is, um, at least according to the complaint, that JetBlue just basically take is trying to take Spirit Airlines and turn it into more JetBlue. Um, and like we talked about before we started recording, we both flown, flown budget airlines and it's like, it's not fun. It's, uh, it's, it sucks. Um, but, uh, but there's a time and a place for it. I mean, when I was in college, that's, that's how I could get around. Um, and you know, if you, if you can deal with the, uh, with, with what flying on, um, one of these budget airlines entails, uh, then that option ideally should be there for you, um, versus kind of being placed into a market that only caters towards higher end service and, and all these other bells and whistles. Um, but so, isn't that what we're complaining about? I mean, that's like, we've got kind of cruddy flights and service has been bad over the last decade. Like, isn't, isn't JetBlue fixing that? Are they saving us from that problem? I would say at least with, uh, spirit, you get what you pay for. And on the other ones, like you pay for a service and then they delay your flight and screw you over 50 other ways and you don't get the savings. Um, I, you know, that's just a personal opinion, but I see some value in that. Well, one thing I know for sure, Spirit's not going to be sponsoring this show anytime soon. Look, I'm a fan. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a fan. And uh, I'm, I'm the one who's trying to, to, I'm in favor of keeping them independent. So if the board of directors wants to call me, I'm more than happy to, to sub in on that You'll case. You'll pick up the phone. All right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I just think more of the general trend that um, you are seeing more antitrust litigation, more Sherman Act stuff um, out of the Biden administration. We've talked about on this show issues with supply chain management, um, the ways in which market consolidation has affected things like inflation, of course, supply side economics and all of that. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, to have basically a robust competitive field of like 20 plus airlines reduced to like five over the course of 20 years, um, uh, at the same time, that period coincides with, I think what we all agree with is a decrease in service. Um, those two things have got to be related. Uh, you know, I, I, maybe some economists can, can point out and tell me I'm wrong, but I, I think that they probably are related. And so doing the bare minimum here to preserve a little bit of competition, especially on the low end of pricing, is probably um, the right move for the Department of Justice, in my opinion. That's the show for today. You can find us, as always, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any thoughts on any of these stories, let us know what you think. Until next time.